how's that? <clears throat> well, as Damon said, I'm a little under the weather, so uh, I have to bear with me a little. Um, I was telling him earlier, I might end up doing this John Edwards style in a monotone whisper. If you could turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 124. I've asked Mike and James if they would each read a, a version of this psalm, so I'll ask Mike to go first. The Lord has not been on our side, let Israel say. The Lord has not been on our side. When men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept, us, swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let must be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against them, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us, the stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us to be torn by the teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Thank you. Now, it so happens that I did a translation of this psalm when I was a Hebrew student in college. And I'd like to read it for you as well. I uh, was and am far from a professional translator. um, But I don't think I've put any uh, heresies in there this time. Uh, Also, my goal here is a literal uh, capturing of the poetic imagery. On that note, I should mention that I added a couple of small phrases, it was and would have, um, which makes sense in English, but don't really are not necessary in the original. <clears throat> there are copies of, of my version on the back table if anybody didn't get one, if you want to follow along. Psalm 124. A song of going ups of David. If it was not the Lord that was with us, let Israel please say, if it was not the Lord that was with us when men came up against us, then they would have devoured us alive in the burning of their noses against us. Then the waters would have flooded over us. The torrent would have passed over on top of our souls. Then would have passed over on top of our souls the waters, the insolent ones. Blessed be the Lord who gave us not prey into their teeth. Our souls, like the birds, slipped away from the snare of the bait layers. The snare is broken and we have slipped away. Our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Not so distant from the scholarly translations, but... Well, I don't notice any obvious heresies in my version, (laughs) but there's a kind of visceral kick that I think is lost in a lot of the scholarly translations. Um, We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but first let's start at the beginning. I've heard that's a good place. The first line is not considered a verse, but rather a note. Um, You heard in all three versions... um, a song of ascents, a song of going ups of David is how I translated it. A little more fluidly, a song of ascents. 
Um, unlike some notes or subtitles that you see in your uh, Bibles, this one actually comes from the Hebrew, um, as opposed to being added by the translators later on. The, um, the NASB, which James was reading, actually indicates this by putting it in the same font as the rest of the verse, rather than in italics above, as many uh, additional subtitles are. If you've ever peeked into the world of Bible translation, I'm sure you can imagine the amount of uh, theories and speculations that um, the not-verse official note has spawned. I'm not going to go too far into those, but suffice it to say that this is the title of the poem um, rather than its first line when you see a piece of paper. And it says, a poem by Titus at the top, you kind of know what's going on. It's, um, It's the title rather than the poem itself. More importantly, this title identifies this psalm as one of a group, the Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 of them. Um, they're all clustered together here, Psalm 120 through 134. They all have that note at the beginning. If you glance around your Bible, you'll see that note of, uh, among uh, all those different psalms. Uh, most of them don't name any author, but four of them are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. And the common understanding is that these songs were used when the Jews went up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple during the pilgrimage festivals. There are three of those. Um, Let's see. You may have noticed throughout the the, both Testaments, actually, that any time somebody is going to Jerusalem, they never go down to Jerusalem. They never head on over to Jerusalem. They're always going up. So you might imagine that that's because Jerusalem's on some high mountain that overlooks all the land, but it's not. Um, what it is, it's on a hill completely surrounded by valleys, as some of us will know from personal experience, uh, who may have been there. So it's impossible to go to Jerusalem or the temple without going up, because you have to first go down into a valley, and then you have to climb the hill. So it has a nice symbolic um, Element, but it's also just a physical reality that you have to go up if you're going to Jerusalem. So um, that's why the songs that were sung on the way up to Jerusalem are called songs of ascent, because we're all we're all going to go up to Jerusalem. Um, some people have also said that the priests used the psalms of ascent on the temple steps, of which there were also 15. While we're speculating, maybe Solomon built 15 steps because there were 15 songs of ascent. Um, uh, the point is that there are songs for going up to worship at the temple, specifically at these three pilgrimage festivals, which were Passover or Pesach, which we're mostly familiar with, um, Shavuot, which is the uh, Feast of Weeks, and Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths. These are Old Testament holidays. Um, when the Israelites were commanded to gather at the temple in Jerusalem to remember the faithfulness of God. And Uh, In uh, Passover, they were remembering being um, delivered out of Egypt. In Shavuot, the giving of the law. And in Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, um, uh, preserving them in the wilderness. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16 through 17 summarizes, Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, and at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, 
which he has given to you. <clears throat> so you might think of these psalms of ascent uh, like Christmas carols. They're for the holiday season. And like Christmas carols, they trend to the themes of the holiday. Well, as the non-secular Christmas carols do. In this case, the Jew- for the Jewish holidays, the themes are deliverance, past and present, prayers for help, prayers for peace, delight in relationship with God, delight in the unity of Israel, and of course, remembrance of God's faithfulness to his people. Psalm 124 falls solidly into that last category. You might call it an Ebenezer. As uh, the Greenholtz and Damon were discussing a couple of weeks ago, an Ebenezer is a monument set up um, to mark a great event. Uh, Literally, it's a gathering of stones or a treasure house of stones, if you want to translate it that way. Uh, We find a good example in 1 Samuel 7.12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Um, In this case, the stone represents a military victory. I'll tell you the story. Some of you who are students of uh, modern Israeli history will find this kind of darkly humorous. Basically, the prophet Samuel had gathered all of the um, Israelites together at Mizpah to pray and repent of their idolatry. And the Philistines heard about the prayer meeting and thought, what an excellent time to go slaughter everyone. So they came up against them and uh, while the meeting was going on. And um, so the, uh, the Israelites were surprised and began to panic. But Samuel was already praying. He continued to pray. And basically God intervened. And instead of being slaughtered, the Israelites routed the Philistines and subdued them. And from that moment until Samuel died, they were subdued. So that's what they got for interrupting a prayer meeting. So then Samuel raised his Ebenezer. Um, He raised his stone and he said, This far the Lord has helped us. This was all before the people demanded a king and got Saul. And as we know, David followed Saul. David wrote our psalm. So he may have been thinking of this battle when he wrote the psalm, or may have been thinking of another battle like it, or most likely he was thinking of the many battles like it, because all this was a pattern for God in Israel, and it was a pattern for God in David, particularly. He was always going in <clears throat> to battle at a disadvantage and coming out victorious. Um, yeah, so let's go back to the psalm itself. Um, a song of going ups of David. It was If it was not the Lord that was with us, let Israel please say, if it was not the Lord that was with us when men came up against us. In these two lines, we see the basic poetic form of the psalm. Um, the psalms, after all, are songs or poems, but they work with a set of tools that's somewhat different from Western tools. Much of the Western tradition relies on rhymes and on patterns of syllables and accents. So we have, I shot an arrow into the air. It fell to earth, I know not where. That's Longfellow. Or, so when your hope's on fire, but you know your desire, don't hold a glass over the flame, don't let your heart grow cold. I will call you by name, I will share your road. That's Mumford. Hebrew poetry tends to be a little less mathematical than that. 
Uh, it uh, mainly deals in imagery, metaphor, simile, and of course repetition, as we have seen in this psalm. Um, all different kinds of repetition. Um, sometimes very complex interactions between words and ideas that echo and call back to one another. This one's pretty straightforward. Um, it works on parallelism, which is a common structure. Actually, throughout all of the Old Testament, a lot of the prophecies are organized this way, um, where each line builds on the last line, either repeating words or repeating thoughts, and then building or um, responding to them in some way. So, um, so we have, it was not the Lord that was, if it was not the Lord that was with us, let Israel please say, that's, um, that's kind of a call for response. It's like, um, say it with me, you know. Um, not exactly repeat after me, but definitely calling Israel to join in this um, remembrance. If it was not the Lord that was with us, and then we have the addition when men came up against us. In this uh, case, we find synonymous parallelism, meaning that it repeats the same thought and then adds to the thought. Um, but you could also have... Uh, antithetical parallelism, which is this, uh, when the second line contrasts to the first. So uh, Proverbs 19.16 says, He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. So you see the echo of thoughts, but it's a contrast rather than um, uh, an addition. Um, but we'll see primarily um, synonymous parallelism in uh, Psalm 124. We can break the psalm down poetically into six parts. There's the title, which we talked about, this first couplet, the introduction. Then there's a triplet, a transition verse in verse 6, another couplet in verse 7, and finally the conclusion in verse 8. The first uh, couplet set, lays the groundwork for our Ebenezer. David, as I said, was always uh, going into battle at a disadvantage. He was a warrior king. He both defended the land of Israel, and he also expanded the land of Israel. Which is particularly amazing since um, the, his deadliest foe were the Philistines, and they had a significant technological advantage over him in pretty much every battle. And actually over Israel, over the Israelites in every battle for decades. Um, the Philistines were a warlike people who came from the sea, um, and among their arsenal, they had solid, straight short swords, and they had iron chariots, neither of which did the, Israels have, did the Israelites have. Um, iron was relatively new at the time, able to easily turn away the bronze weapons that were most common. And the chariots pro uh, provided an armored, elevated, mobile platform that was basically unassailable if you happened to be fighting on foot. And guess how the Israelites generally fought? On foot, of course. And they fought with, um, with a curved uh, bronze sword, which was only sharp on one edge, so you had to use it in a slashing motion. So you can imagine if you have a sword where you have to only use a slashing motion and the other guy has a sword that is great at stabbing, you're probably at a disadvantage. It's a little more efficient to be able to stab and slash um, when you're on the battlefield. Aside from that, the Israelites um, often had no professional weaponry at all. They were literally beating their 
pruning hooks into spears and, and such. Some of their oppressors required them not to have any weapons. All, out, all throughout the stories of David, you hear him looking for a sword. Does anybody have a sword? Oh, there's a sword over in that city. I'll go over there so that I can fight my battle. Um, whereas the Philistines seem to have plenty of swords laying about the place. <clears throat> Excuse me. Suffice to say, as I've said, as I've said um, David was always going into battle at a military disadvantage, and he knew it. He was a military man. He knew what the odds were. He knew that he shouldn't be able to win, and he describes that for us in this psalm. If it was not the Lord that was with us, let Israel please say, if it was not the Lord that was with us when men came up against us, then they would have devoured us alive in the burning of their noses against us. Then the waters would have flooded over us, the torrent would have passed over on top of our souls. They would have passed over on top of our souls, the waters, the insolent ones. It's just really powerful imagery, especially there in the original. They would have devoured us alive. And my favorite image of all, which is invisible in the scholarly translations, in the burning of their noses against us. I just think that's a beautiful image of rage and anger. I know that no one here has a temper, and so I'm sure you can't relate, but if you can imagine being so worked up, so utterly given over to fury that your face goes red, and the sweat springs out on your temples, and the tears spring to your eyes, and the air burns in your nostrils. That's the image that hides behind the translation, when their anger flared, or when their anger was kindled. We can imagine Israel's foes, berserkers taken by bloodlust, and capable of swallowing them without even bothering to kill them first. This enemy would hit them like a flash flood, as we see in verses 4 and 5. Then the waters would have flooded over us. The torrent would have passed over on top of our souls. Then would have passed over on top of our souls the waters, the insolent ones. This image seems particularly apt this week with all the rain and flood we have had. And um, uh, conveniently, the climate and topography of Israel is very similar to ours. They have um, a lot of dry, warm, sunny days with occasional rains. And they have um, many deep, steep-sided canyons, which are usually dry, and when the rain comes, they turn into rivers, just like we have around here. In Israel, they call them wadis. And um, a a flash storm could turn a normal dry wadi into a raging torrent in a very short period of time, just as we have flash floods here. So... um, David gives us a picture of someone caught in the bottom of that wadi when the flash flood strikes. The water suddenly and swiftly overwhelms him, and he's pinned down, helpless to fight back, to rise, or even to move. And then we see in the final verse of the triplet, these waters are not passive, but intentional, hearkening back to the fact this is a metaphor for his enemies. The waters, the insolent ones. These metaphorical waters have an axe to grind, and Israel is the target. So we see an enemy of immense power and malice that would like nothing better than to crush Israel in an instant. And they would have. David knows they would have. Over and over in the history of the world, God's people have been struck down, would have been struck down, run over, and annihilated, if not for one thing, which is the presence of God. We see it in verses 1 and 2, and now in verse 6. 
Blessed be the Lord who gave us not prey into their teeth. We know that Israel is not wiped out in David's time. In fact, David was a military powerhouse who defeated and subdued his enemies on all sides and expanded the holdings of the Israelite nation. And David knows how this contradiction came to be. Verse 6 is our transition when David shifts gears from what would have happened, what should have happened by natural laws, to what did happen. The Lord preserved his people. In verse 7 he says, Our souls like the bird slipped away from the snare of the bait layers. The snare is broken and we have slipped away. I love this image also. You imagine that fragile little bird kind of flitting and picking its way toward the hidden snare. The bird is at an extreme disadvantage to the snare. For one thing, it doesn't know it's there. And for another, if it does get caught, it basically has no hope. And yet the little bird slips away unharmed. More than that, the snare is broken. The bird did not uh, break the snare. For it to be broken, she had to be delivered by an external force, able to overcome a danger against against which the bird has no uh, hope. David knows the name of that force. Our help is in the name of the Lord, he says in verse 8, the maker of heaven and earth. Against unreasonable odds, Israel has help, and that help is powerful. He's the maker of heaven and earth. I'm reminded of a thought that came up when Mike and I were talking about his message on creation. It occurred occurred to us that when God uses a metaphor that refers to the natural world, he's not using someone else's work as an example. He's using his own work. In other words, when God says something is like a mountain, the mountain and the metaphor are the same thought. They come from the same mind. The mind of God. And that's a powerful ally. And that's what David means when he says, Our help is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So David reminds us that the Lord, our Lord, is the ultimate power in the universe. As he has shown time after time, that he loves us and takes care of us. Throughout the scriptures, we see the faithfulness of a loving God defending and preserving his people. David called, calls Israel to remember, to join him in retelling the tales of God's faithfulness in their lives, making them victorious in the face of overwhelming odds and bringing about his plans and his purposes despite obstacles that to us seem insurmountable. This psalm should turn our minds and hearts in the same direction. We in this congregation um, are no strangers to struggle and challenge. We've seen tragedy and sickness, financial difficulty. We've needed work and places to live. We've known heartache and pain. Above all, we've faced the rushing tide of our own brokenness, threatening to sweep, sweep us away like a flash flood. Yet, in each of our lives we have seen the overwhelming power of God's grace and his attention. He's comforted us in our losses and sent others for us to lean on. He has healed our bodies and given us the strength to endure the indignities of infirmity. He has provided for our needs, sent us work and food and places to live. He's given us peaceful moments amid storms of heartache and healed our emotional pain. And he has freed our souls like the bird from the snare of our brokenness by his sacrifice to give us salvation. Like Samuel raising his stone saying, 
This far the Lord has helped us. Like the Israelites raising their voices together on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, we can each look back at our own modern, messy, complicated lives and see the grace of God and his provision to us. We ought to speak those stories aloud as reminders of our, to ourselves and to others. We ought to raise our Ebenezer's when the torrent is rushing in and it seems like we'll be swallowed whole. These stories will remind us that our help is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is real. He is powerful. And you are constantly on his mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder that you are always with us, that you love us and that you are powerful, that you care about us and our practical needs as well as our spiritual ones. Help us to be faithful, to remember the deeds that you've done in the past for your people and in our specific lives. Thank you that you're Love and attention is not general, but it's specific that you have provided for our needs in so many ways. Help us to be mindful of that, to speak of it, and to be thankful and audibly thankful for your faithfulness. In your name I pray, amen. Stand with me and we'll sing the doxology.